morning and you're very welcome along to The Home Show. I'm Sinead Ryan. On the show this morning, the mortgage coach, Joey Sheehan, will be giving us his tips and tricks for what to consider when switching. If you're looking to get away from it all this summer, we'll be chatting about self-building camper vans. The holistic gardener joins me in studio to create a low allergy garden. And Optimised Design's Denise O'Connor will be busting interior design myths and showing us how to curate our bookshelves. If you'd like to get involved in the show today, you can text us here on The Home Show at 53106 for 30 cent. You can email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com and you'll find me over on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100. And you can listen live or listen back to the show and all of our shows on podcast uh, on the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. Uh, now, good morning, everyone. And uh, we're told uh, the weekend is going to be opening up to be a beautiful weather-wise and let us hope that that is the case. Now, most of us don't have a grand library at home like Downton Abbey or some of the great Irish houses, but you probably have a couple of bookcases or bookshelves. And if you're like me, you have a variety of to-be-read piles uh, on various surfaces, uh, promising to take the kind of the red books to charity shops, but not ever getting around to actually doing it. Well, later on this show, I'll be looking at the contentious topic of curating books. Now, this, of course, taxes the minds of librarians everywhere, but at home you can decide to do it however you like. Do you display them by genre? You know, the biographies in one place and the sports or the thrillers in a different place. Or is it alphabetically or horror of horror by colour? Well, it takes all sorts, but there are some very dodgy choices being made out there in the name of interior design. I'll be getting the expert's view, but let me hear yours. How should your bookshelves be styled? Let me know on 53106 or email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. And you're very welcome along this morning. Now, the mortgage market is about to shrink with the departure of Ulster Bank and KBC from Ireland. Add to that the threat of increasing interest rates and it can be a confusing time for borrowers to know where to go next. But there may also be opportunities for those who are looking for a home loan. Well, here to discuss all that with me is Joey Sheehan, author of The Mortgage Coach. Joey, welcome back to The Home Show all the way from Cork. Thanks for having me on the show, Sinead. Always a pleasure. Now, tell me first what we think is going to happen uh, for those that have mortgages with Ulster Bank and KBC. Should they just be sitting tight and waiting to see what happens there? At the moment, Ulster Bank and KBC are both going through the registry process of transferring their mortgages with the CCPC. And that has to yet be finalised, as far as I'm aware. Now, what we are seeing, Sinead, at the moment, we are seeing a flurry of Ulster Bank and KBC mortgage customers looking to switch their mortgage to longer-term fixed rates mm. because they are seeking clarity around what interest rate they're paying, number one, and also they want clarity around you know what lender, the uncertainty as that dealing with the same lender for the next 20 years or however long is left in their mortgage. But they don't so, have to do that. I mean, if you know, under the existing rules, if you are an Ulster Bank or KBC mortgage holder, you know, your mortgage will be transferred. You don't have to switch. You don't have to take any action unless, unlike, you know, say the current accounts. So if you just did nothing, then your mortgage will be sold on under its current terms and conditions. Isn't that right? Correct. So your, your mortgage will migrate over to the new lender, be that uh, most likely Bank of Ireland or permanent TSB in the case of Ulster Bank and KBC customers. However, you know, I, I've mentioned Ulster Bank and KBC, but this, this applies to all borrowers and anybody with a mortgage you should be reviewing your mortgage on an ongoing basis, and particularly now because it looks almost certain that interest rates will begin mm. to rise uh, in the next number of months. And uh, there are longer-term fixed rates out there. So whether you're with Ulster, 
CBC or any other bank, you should be checking out, get into a broker today, see what other rates are out there. And we have fixed uh, rates for up to 25 years, yeah. starting from 2.5%, which in my opinion is exceptional value. We've never seen uh, fixed rates for that long in Ireland before. And with rates about to rise, chances are we won't see it again. So I think there's a window of opportunity now. There's a golden opportunity for borrowers to take back control of, of their interest rate from their bank and lock into a longer rate. Um, you know, just to give an example, Sinead, somebody who, you know, as an alternative of paying 4.5 on a variable rate, if they could lock into a 2.5, 25-year fixed on a 300,000 mortgage over 25 years, uh, on a house worth, say, 500,000, they could save 320 euros per month or 96,000 euros over the 25 uh, years uh, yeah, of the mortgage. Yeah, and, and that certainly sounds attractive, Joey, and, and the numbers absolutely stack up. But, but, isn't it the case that people look at that, I mean, they might be prepared to make two phone calls to change their car insurance or their Sky to Virgin or whatever it is, but, like, there's an awful palaver in switching, and I think people probably get put off by that, do you think? Like, there is a lot of paperwork involved. There is paperwork involved, Sinead, there's no doubt about that, and the whole process could, could take, you know, two two months, maybe three months on average. But if something's going to save me 320 a month and 96,000 over the next 25 years, well, I'll tell you, I'll be doing the paperwork. <laughs> and, you know, I, I've given this example before. We've seen people, I have friends that don't have Sky Sports at home because they're trying to save, you know, 10, 20, 30 euros on their TV bill, and maybe they're overpaying on their, their mortgage by two, 300 euros. Yeah, yeah. And, okay, yes, yes, you need to get some paperwork together. But the banks do, some of the banks have streamlined this and they've, you know, they need re- reduced documentation for a straight switcher. Mm. So this is definitely worth considering and rates are about to rise. Um, Christine yeah. Lagarde. Well, let's yeah. talk about that because, you know, they've been in the doldrums now for the best part of, what, six years or, or thereabouts and they've never really been lower. Um, albeit, I think Irish people are used to paying more than European uh, Europeans for, for uh, mortgage interest. But there absolutely now is a move by the European Centre Bank. They've been resisting this all along because inflation, which is, we all know, running amok at the moment, but they had kind of thought, look, it's a temporary thing. It's energy related. You don't fix that by jacking up the prices people have to pay on loans. Um, but they there, there seems to be no doubt now there's movement in the market. What do you think um, is going to happen now with interest rates over, say, the next year? Well, Christine Lagarde from the European Central Bank was quoted during the week as saying that interest rates you know, could rise and, and probably will rise as early as possibly in July with further rises later in the year and into the start of next year. So we could see 0.75, and it's most likely we will see, based on commentators, 0.75% increase on the ECB rate within the next you know, six, six, nine months. And I think that sounds fairly probable at this point. Um, another point just to, just to note is that when a bank is lending uh, for a mortgage at the in, in, initial drawdown stage, they will stress test a loan by 2%. So they will say, look, this person is going to be paying a rate of 2.5%. If rates rise 2%, can they sustain it? So every loan would be stress tested on average at about 2%. So I think at this point, it's reasonable to think that rates could increase by 2% over the next Two, two, three years. Right. Okay. So, so, so that that's a, that is a worry now for for quite a lot of people. I mean, the banks might have stress tested their loan at the outset, but that might have been pre-COVID. Maybe their earnings haven't returned to normal, so they could absolutely see that kind of being employed now end up paying two percent more than they had anticipated. That's going to have an immediate impact on the likes of 
uh, the trackers. Now, of course, we, we envy people with trackers, Joey, because, you know, they've been having the cheapest mortgages around. But actually, they're the first ones to go up now in, in interest rates. They're going to rise immediately. Is there ever an argument for switching a tracker? And I'm loath even to ask the question. Yeah, so my, my modus operandi would be would have been traditionally since 2008. If you had a tracker, 2008, the tracker rate stopped. But if you had a tracker rate, it was gold dust. Do not touch it, do not alter it, do nothing. Keep your tracker rate. Mm. However, what I have noticed in the last month or two is a marked increase in inquiries from people on tracker rates looking to fix in for longer term uh, fixed rates. So, you know, they might be paying 1% now. They, they're saying, okay, if it's going to be 1.75% increase in the next six or nine months, I'm going to be at 1.75%. However, I can lock in for seven years at 1.95% mm, or mm. I can take longer at 25 or 3%. So we are starting to see a shift, certainly in, in inquiries of, of people considering the longer term fixed rates. Because if there is a rate increase of 1% or 2%, your tracker rate will become 2 or 3%. Yeah, you know? and and I know like at a time when things are so uncertain and people are very, very worried um, about not just the economics, but the way the world is going at the moment. Is it a good idea to fix for that long in the first place? 20, 25 years? Like, you don't know what's ahead. Well, I would say if somebody, let's say they've built a house and they're never going to move or they've bought their dream home and they're never going to move, I would say that person definitely should give serious consideration to fixing for the longer term. Um, Finance Ireland have an offering where you can port the mortgage with you. So let's say if you buy your starter home, three-bed semi in a new development today, and you're saying, look, in five years' time or seven years' time, we hope to move to the four-bed around the corner, they have a a product where you can port the mortgage with you. So if you're paying uh, 2.5% or or 3% now on a 25-year fixed rate, you can take that with you to the new property you're mm, buying. Mm. Okay, so, so okay. There, there would be an option there. So, and I suppose a lot of the non-bank lenders like Avant, like Finance Ireland and, and those, they'd be kind of possibly a little bit more agile than the traditional retail banks. Um, finally, Joey, just talk to me about first-time buyers. Um, we saw in the daft report that was issued towards the end of the week that uh, house prices have gone up again, rents are up again, all down to lack of supply and the government saying, we're building the houses, there's loads of them coming on stream. What is your evidence, um, certainly down in Cork now, about how first-time buyers are faring? Um, well, pro- first-time buyers, there's not enough properties. There are developments in the pipeline, but they're coming, they're coming too slowly. Um, so there's an absolute shortage in property. I think, I think that's nationally for first-time buyers. However, I suppose with the mortgage choice for first-time buyers, they do have good choice in terms of, um, you know, they can get an 80% loan from all lenders. Some lenders would also offer cashback. They'll offer lower rates if the house you're buying is going to be A or B uh, mm. energy rating. Um, then just another point to note is regarding variable income. Some banks will allow no variable income, some will allow some variable income, and some will allow all variable income. Okay. So when I, when I say variable income, I mean bonus, commission, overtime. Yeah, or people who are self-employed or seasonal, you know, workers exactly. that, yeah. that kind of earn different amounts throughout the year. All right. Well, I suppose your advice then to first-time buyers or for anybody looking at, at switching their mortgage or moving their mortgage would be do your homework, do your research. Well, listen, Joey uh, Sheehan, author of The Mortgage Coach, thanks a million uh, for joining us again on The Home Show this morning. Thank you, Sinead. Now, up next, if you fancy a touring holiday in a camper van, we're going to look at style options for the interior. 
Now, you're very welcome back to the Home Show here on News Talk. I'm Sinead Ryan with you until nine o'clock. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can text us on 53106 or email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. And I'm still looking for your ideas on how to curate those bookshelves. I, I don't think there's any other way to do it than by genre. That's how I do it. And uh, but... I don't know. Maybe you think differently. We'll be getting the experts view later on in the show. Now, you won't be taking too many books on holiday with you if you find yourself in a camper van. And if you're looking to get away from it all this summer, have you ever thought about converting a van into a camper van? Well, Ender Reed runs Old Boy Campers and he joins us now to give us his top tips. And you're very welcome along uh, to the show this morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Great to be here. Now, before we start, did lots of people buy camper vans during lockdown? I mean, when we weren't allowed go anywhere, fly anywhere, do anything, no hotels were open. There seemed to be a surge of people looking for caravans and camper vans. There was. There was unprecedented demand around that time where people realised that they were going to be in the country for an indefinite period of time. The main problem with it was that there wasn't, there never is a huge supply of second-hand camper vans available in the country. Um, the market is still pretty small and growing, um, so it, you have to be really careful when buying second-hand here. But I think a lot of people had the idea that they would have more time, that they could possibly convert a van themselves. So there was a huge increase in both clients getting in touch with us to build vans for them and booking in their conversions and then mm. people kind of having a go and building them themselves. So this is where you're you're not buying a kind of a ready-made motorhome or, you know, a caravan that you, that you tow along. This is just like a regular, I don't know, like a high ace or a regular van that you outfit uh, from the inside out. It sounds like a massive project. So tell us about Mags. Who is she? Mags is, yeah, you're right in regards to that. It's normally a commercial van the likes of your Renault Master your Peugeot Boxer that people are kidding out to be a fully motorhome at the end of the day but it wouldn't be called a motorhome I suppose a camper van at the end of the day um, Mags was the first van that uh, myself and my friend built together she got in touch asking would I help uh, she had a lot of plans done I didn't know a huge amount about it at the time and we built that out in about five weeks on a very limited budget and we just worked around the clock and from that point then, we kind of learned an awful lot about all the process. We learned a lot about sourcing materials, suppliers, um, the steps and stages. And we just absolutely loved it. We loved the challenge of it. And we did that van out in five weeks because I was leaving. I had a deadline because I was leaving the country to go to Colombia for a few weeks. And yeah, once it was finished in Colombia, I kind of thought I really enjoyed that. Uh, I'm going to build another one came back and I just started building and it's been growing ever since. Now Mags, um, I, I've seen some pictures of her interior, so to speak. Yeah. She's absolutely beautiful. It's very Instagrammable end, isn't it? I mean, you know, all the, the kind of, it buys into that boho, chic zeitgeist that is so popular at the moment. But it strikes me you have to get the basics right before you can start putting in the nice throw cushions and the kind of the fancy glasses into storage. It, it, talk to me first about insulation because, I mean, look, if you're holidaying in Ireland, you might get a lovely weekend like we have now, but most of the time you can't rely on it. So where do you start with that? That's not for the faint-hearted, I would think. Absolutely not. Yeah, Mags is incredibly Instagrammable and that's all down to Tracy, Tracy Gallagher that, uh, that had that touch. But you're right, the basics have to be there. There's a lot of work that goes on that will never be seen even in the van. Um, the insulation being a key one here in, in Ireland especially. 
it's a bit of a minefield in terms of the installation. Everyone has a different opinion on the right way to do it, and all most opinions are, are absolutely valid. I wouldn't get too bogged down in, in trying to do it to a certain person's you know, advice or specifications. I think find what works for you. There's some important questions as well. How long will you be in the van? What kind of a heat source do you have in the van? And have you access to 240-volt electric or, or hookup? Um, mm. So insulation, you can use various different things. People use everything from rock wool, recycled sheep's wool, recycled plastic insulation. Um, there's a closed-cell spray foam insulation you can use. So there's lots of different methods. You kind of just have to do your research, pick one that will suit you, fit your budget, and be within the means of you, you being able to, to do it yourself. And I suppose um, when it comes to things like fitting a gas hob or whatever, like that's absolutely where you call in the experts, um, you know, for stuff like that. Now, talk to me about storage, because, uh, you know, obviously that that is a key consideration if you're going to live in what is really a terribly small space. What kind of innovations do you have in terms of, of storing away your stuff? 100%. When you're living in any small space, it's always challenging. So you really want the space set up for you, your needs, your, your wants, how you live, what you do, uh, if you've any children or pets. You, it all has to be considered when you're considering the layout of the van. Secondly, like almost everything in the van has two functions. You know, you really want to be packing and getting as much out of everything as you can. Storage is absolutely essential, but it needs to be accessible as well. You need to be able to get at what you need when you need it. So it's a combination of really doing your homework in terms of your design and layout, looking at any extra space available and seeing if you added something into that space, would it make the van feel too cramped? Or have you got the, you know, you need to get the balance right between being comfortable in your van and then having as much storage as possible. Lots of different methods, you know, seats turning into underneath all your seats is storage that can be accessible from a bench laid at the top, over your bulkhead, uh, under your bed, like Every kind of ounce of spare space really should be considered for a function in the van, if at all possible. And it's a real 3D space because you have to even include the ceiling as storage and up high where things are put away. And I presume you can't have anything kind of flying around the place. If you're going to be driving it and turning corners, everything has to be secured. Absolutely. It's a number one priority that you're making sure that any cabinets that you have have sufficient catches or locks on them that aren't going to open during driving. There's numerous ways of achieving that. You need to be sure that everything is in place and secure when you're driving around. Um, you know, if you have to stop suddenly, you do not want items shooting up to the, to the front of the van. Mm, mm. You know, a lot of the time people have removed the bulkhead from the van for access from the front to the back. So ultimately, there's nothing between your cargo load and yourself as you drive. So safety is really important in, in yeah. terms of that. Now, um, in terms of the design then, I mean, it has definitely moved on from the day of the plastic formica beige worktops. You, uh, you, you thankfully. Use a, <laughs> thankfully, yes and no. But you use a lot of recycled wood, a, a lot of um, colour and vibrancy and different textures. Uh, tell me about some of the design elements that you, you've used in, in some of your camper vans. Yeah, so we're a little bit different in that front. Every van that we built is 100% custom to the owner, you know, and that's, I think, the main reason that a lot of clients get in touch with us here. We build slightly differently. Everything is quite rustic. There's a lot of wood used or lightweight wood used, um, and we just kind of try and build a small home more so than your traditional camper van. So, you know, like we mentioned earlier, being in a small space can be difficult, but you want to be comfortable in it. You want to be happy in it, and it needs to be kind of positive. I personally, I'm not a big fan of a lot of the 
carpeted, the sterile kind of interior looks that look more like your traditional older camper vans. They're great for a lot of people, but I like to have something that's a little bit more unique, a little bit more um, kind of rustic, I suppose. Mm. And it just makes the space that much more enjoyable to be in. Colors, materials, there's just a world of options out there and a little bit of research or if you know your own mind you know what you want then you can kind of go and get inspiration and and the look can be achievable uh, no matter what the budget is you know now speaking of budget what are we looking at here because if you're buying a camper van a van to convert i presume you're buying it second hand as it is it's it's gutted uh so probably that's the cheapest bit of it maybe a couple of thousand euros to import it or to to buy it here I, it's probably as long as a piece of string, but what what would people need to be setting aside to do something really fancy, um, even in that small space? Yeah, so the budget is absolutely crucial. Um, it can add up really, really quickly. You really need to have a good handle on what you're going to be buying, all the appliances you need, all the materials that you need. And then even like some tools that you need, screws, glue, there's so many items that you need to kind of uh, to consider. So a budget at the beginning is really, really important. How much you're going to spend on a build, it really is like a piece of string. You could go anything from a couple of thousand euro to an extremely basic conversion, right up to 50, 60, 70, 80,000 euro wow. that you could spend. There's, you know, there's no limit really. What are you getting for that now, Enter, You're getting gold taps and a jacuzzi? <laughs> well, gold wouldn't be very convenient. It, everything needs to be lightweight. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can, there's just, like, like anything else, you know, you can go and spend 250,000 euro on a car. You can go and spend 2,000 euro on a car. It really is all down to your own taste and what you want in it. There's loads of extras you can put in. You can, you know, and the van itself, depending on your budget again, you know, the van itself could cost anywhere between 20, 30,000, 40,000, yeah, even if you're yeah. going, you know, real top of the range. But it really doesn't have to be. I think a lot of people get bogged down with, with Instagram and with a lot of the, the online content that they're seeing. And they see all these wonderful things in the van. Mm. But ultimately, it's not, you know, it's, it mightn't be necessary for how they would be using the van, where they'll be going on their trips, how long they would be going for. So it really needs to be a practical decision. I think a key thing would be breaking it down to be, what are the must-haves? You know, yeah. we must have this cooker, we must have a toilet, you know, they must have the bed. And then what are they would like to have, would mm. like to have? So solar maybe, or you, you might have an oven, or you might put in a 12-volt TV. So there's loads and loads you can do. Ultimately, it's similar to your own, let's say, your living room or, or any other room yeah. in your house. You can put it out as you want it and spend as much or as little as you, you need to get All that All right. Done. It strikes me as the kind of project where you're never really finished with it. Would that be fair? Absolutely <laughs> fair. Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. the Brooklyn Bridge. You, you finish it, you get it designed, you go away on a couple of trips and you think, ah, oh, no, that's not working out for me. I'll have to redo the whole interior Absolutely. all over again. <laughs> okay. But it is an important part of it, Sinead, you know, because you, you know, you're not, you're maybe not necessarily going to get everything right from the very beginning. Yeah. You know, you're going to figure out, well, actually, that might be better if we change that shelf around and we made it into something different. Or if we added a little bit more seating or if we put in swiveled seats, it would access yeah. this whole yeah. other area. So it is, it's always going. And the labour of love, I think. It really is, yeah. You really okay. need to be uh, completely committed to constantly been looking at improvements or even just uh, repairs or whatever it is yeah. there's always something to be done something to be done all right well I know you're based down there in Clare Morris in County Mayo a lovely part of the country and uh, where can people find out more about uh, what you do and maybe take a look at mags yeah there's uh, I have the website oldboycampers.ie 
there's also content on Instagram and Facebook, and you'll find that just by searching for Old Boy Campers. Um, and there's a lot of kind of photos and inspired of all the builds we've done in there. People can get in touch through any of those methods, or you know, there's uh, email oldboycampers at gmail dot com, and we're always happy to help if we can. Good. All right. Well, I wish you a sunny summer uh, as you continue all of those conversions. Uh, and Reid, thank you uh, very much for joining us this morning on The Home Show. No problem. Thanks, Sinead. Have a good day. Now, this week, there have been reports of shortages of some hay fever medicines. And so creating a low allergy garden may be the solution to bring you some relief. Well, I'm delighted to welcome back into studio the holistic gardener, Fino Nulon. How are things here. going for you at the moment? Yeah, going great. Yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of coming back now. We've been lucky enough with the weather, even over the winter. And mm. it looks now as if we're going to get yeah, this yeah. another one. That could be the summer. <laughs> Indeed. Now, look, I always feel sorry for people who have you know, asthma mm. or hay fever or respiratory illnesses. I'm, I'm mm. living with somebody who, who uh, has asthma and it's a terrible burden mm. at this time of year when you've got the pollen and what everybody else delights in seeing the bees and yeah. the flowers coming out and everything uh, burgeoning. But it, it can be really tough. But the great thing is, is that there, there are lots of stuff you can do to minimise the kind of triggers of respiratory issues and still have the enjoyment of the garden. So mm. it's just about a couple of simple different tweaks. But even like that, like, you know, for for a lot of people, you have to time or kind of pay attention to where your allergies kick in. Because if you're getting your kind of sniffles and your runny nose in February through March and April, then your allergy is actually to tree pollen. So if you see stuff with kind of all the catkins on it, you want to be editing those out of your garden. So oh, I know right. I never advise chopping down a tree, but if you're suffering from asthma or any of the kind of upper respiratory tract complications. The lesser of two evils. Yeah. Uh, so that's interesting. So it's not all the same for everybody then, no. depending on what you have. So wh- what, ki- what are the big triggers? What are the things that, that are going to attack most people's Yeah, so so in terms of like, there's, there's lots beyond pollen. So even before we get to pollen, uh, kind of one of the main things would be that a lot of people would have a reaction to dander and detritus. So that would be the same that's in pet the house. hair, is it? So that's basically, yeah, your, your, your pet hair. So everybody can develop a sensitivity or a sudden onset reaction to any pollen dust or dander that gets into the airways, into the nose or into the eyes. And what happens is we're naturally predisposed to have a histamine reaction. Histamine ascends to that location to make you basically cry out the pollen grain or the dust grain or for your nose to run like a tap to flush it out or to start coughing to cough it up. So anybody could walk out on any particular day where there happens to be a lot of pollen or a lot of dander or whatever in the air and have a single reaction and that's it. People who have hay fever, basically the issue there is that they may either have a sensitivity to different pollen. So pollens come in all different shapes and sizes. So if you think about the kind of COVID virus and how it looks with the different suckers and spikes, mm. well, basically pollen grains look similar under a microscope, but the different types of spikes or different types of suckers may affect people in a different way. And they would have an overproduction of histamine. Okay. So lots of people with hay fever and as- asthma at this time of the year, when all the grass pollen is out and about doing lots, they would take a series of antihistamines to, to, to limit that. that to counteract that and limit it, it down. Okay. Yeah. So when it comes to the garden, and I, you know, the garden, 
maybe for some people at some times of the year can seem like an evil place. Yeah, you know, yeah. a place, the last place you want to be is out among the beautiful trees and flowers and plants. Uh, are there some simple tips that people could take, say, right now, if they don't want to chop down trees and, mm. and all that kind of thing, although it may be the lesser of two evils, yeah. um, uh, that people could take? I know that, for instance, something that surprised me was was discovering that bark uh, isn't mulch, you know, the bark yeah. that looks so beautiful on flower yeah. beds. Because this is the thing, it's not just pollen, it's also dander, which would be kind of animal hairs. And yeah. Even like like the, the broken leg off a, um, a daddy long legs that's blown up in the air or insect wings and the different yeah. detritus that's in the garden. Because we do inhale a lot we of stuff we lot. don't feel or see. Yeah. You so, know. so one of the things that's kind of an unusual way of tackling that is if you think about you know, lots of people want to have seed bombs and stuff within the garden yeah. and have introduced wild wi- wildlife, wildflowers, wildlife, yeah. brilliant, bring yeah. all the Saving insects the in. Yeah. But you're bringing insects in. Okay. So you okay. need to think about where you're going to position that in your garden. So maybe that's your front garden, not where you hang out your washing, not where you sit out and read a book, not where you have your glass of wine in the evening. Put a bit of distance between you okay. and your insect habitat. And then to, if you are going to have kind of um, mulch or bark, maybe you're better off just having gravel. So this is the next thing. Yeah. Then. So then your environments that you plant into, lots of people, like even in terms of like raking up damp leaves, you know, this, there's lots of spores there. People could have allergic reactions to spores as much as they would have to mm, pollen. Mm. But if you, instead of using your bark, which is going to break down and create smaller particles and in the rotting process will develop a, again, other kind of bacterial it spores that are it there. Into the releases air. I mean, that's how composting works. Yeah, isn't it? So, so that's a danger. Okay. So go with maybe a gravel mulch or yeah. better still, go with ground cover. Where does a plant that has no weed, where does a plant that has no exposed yeah. soil? Yeah. So, you know, it's just about a little bit of creative thinking and how you're going to uh, change now, it. Now, we're all for getting rid of the insects. Well, I am. Yeah. <laughs> you're probably yeah. for keeping the insects. I'm for keeping them but there, But there is a natural way to do that. And I suppose it's what, you know, what's annoying for us is food for somebody else. And yeah. birds, of course, eat insects. So is it yeah. a good idea maybe to maybe attract more birds So attract more, garden? that's the thing. So change what yeah. the wildlife is okay. in your garden. Maybe you don't want the fox going through because that's... That's the kind of the hares and the danders. Yeah. And maybe you don't want every insect. Like the birds aren't going to eat the bees. So if you have pollen rich, pollinator friendly plants in the garden, fair enough, the bees will go, will come in. But the smaller insects won't. But if you ha- attract songbirds into the garden and most of the Irish visiting birds that would nest here yeah. over winter. Well, what they're doing is they're picking all of the dander and the detritus to make their nest and they're eating all of the insects. And even better still, they are eating weed seeds. So what plants do you plant to attract birds? Is it plants with berries or? Yeah, I mean, really with birds, it's it's it's, it's about providing them with habitat opportunity. So okay. you can put in nest boxes, but it's also where you might want to put in shrubs or trees that have branches that gives them perching opportunities. Mm. You mm. don't necessarily want them to nest in your garden, but you want them to come in, sit, perch, Rest, and see where feed. the insects are, ah, feed okay. and okay. gather material. And that'll get rid of that job for you. Now, of course, one of the other things, it's not just the asthma and um, the kind of the hay fever. Mm. It's also, you have to be conscious of skin conditions like yeah. dermatitis. Now, I suffer a bit from this myself. Mm. Um, so I always wear the gloves in the garden. Yeah. You know, even if my nearest gloves are just kind of, you know, kitchen gloves. Uh, it That's important, isn't it? It's to, key. To avoid. Yeah. yeah. So many people will. Like, even if you've gardened all of your life, at some point, you're going to develop some form of contact dermatitis just from being around soil, changes in, in kind of moisture, 
different sensitivities that you can build up to a plant. The same way some people, after many, many years, they all, all of a sudden get a rash because their favourite fabric softener mm. all of a sudden mm. is having a reaction mm. with them. And this is the... Because it can change throughout time. It, it, you can acquire that kind you can of dermatitis acquire chemical in later sensitivity. life. sensitivity. <laughs> and it's that thing of like, you know, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Whatever you do, either as a hobby or as a career, at some point in your life, you're going to develop something to it. So for, for a lot of gardeners who like keep roses, for example, yeah. they get so many different scratches over their lifetime that eventually the immune system goes... I'd give us a break, you know, right, okay. and it doesn't want to fight it anymore and you will get something. And then there are plants that the sap may be caustic or it has a sting and we know those kind of nettles and euphorbias and stuff. And then some people just have a natural um, sensitivity to certain plants like ragwort or asters or um, chrysanthemums and they so will be allergic. Is it that. about identifying those? And I mean, how do you know? Because like... If you're gardening all the time and mm. you're out and you're weeding and you're planting new things, how, how do you know which one of, which plants are likely to be the triggers for that? Yeah, and it's often just that you happened that day you were deadheading your asters or you were, yeah. you were pruning something and you notice that night that your hands are dry or you're starting to develop something and it, it, you, you just automatically make that connection. And then because that plant would have a sensitivity with other people on the planet, yeah. well, it just means you now have acquired that sensitivity. Okay. So again, what well, I, I use the term edit, you know, edit it out of the garden, as in dig it up and get rid of yeah, it. Yeah. Now again, going back to that whole thing with spores, like there are a whole lot of plants that develop, you know, conditions like, you know, botrytis, downy mildew, that's spores. So you want to edit those out of the garden as well. Now, by editing them out of the garden, it doesn't mean that you can't can never have asters or penstemons. But you may have them somewhere else. You, you can know, put them maybe further else, away. But you can go look in your garden centre. Over the last twenty to thirty years, they've been breeding disease and and mm. uh, you know pretty much plants that have a resistance to those types. So you can still have your aster and your penstemon. You're just looking for a different variety of it. Okay. All right. Well, lots of food for thought there. Um, it's certainly an area. I, I, it's just so unfortunate that people can't enjoy all of the stuff that, that you know, we love in the summer, in the summer garden. Yeah. But you've given us some great uh, things to go and look for there as alternatives, um, Fian. And uh, where can people find out more about you? So, again, I'm the Holistic Gardener. So, the holisticgardener.com or nip into your local library and look for one of my books, which will give you all advice on how to kind of take care of anything that may arise in a garden situation. Fantastic. All right. Well, listen, the best of luck and uh, continued success, Fian. And uh, I hope we get a lovely summer Thank now that you're here. You're the, you're the omen for Hopefully a nice brought it in. <laughs> Indeed. That's Fiona Nulon, the holistic gardener, uh, joining us this morning on The Home Show. Now, coming up after the break, Denise O'Connor from Optimised Design will be showing us how to showcase our bookshelves. Well, there's another dust gatherer, certainly in my house, all the books that, that, that we have. Uh, and she'll be busting some interior design myths so stay tuned for that and as always you can get your questions into us email us at the home show at newstalk.com or contact us at 53106 Fian nice to see you again lovely to see you and we'll be back after this
And that was paperback writer by the Beatles, of course. And you are very welcome back to the home show here on News Talk. I'm Sinead Ryan. And I was asking at the top of the show and all through it for your curating book selection. Some people are kind of, no, they're like me, do it by genre. There is no other way. And you would be right. Uh, other people uh, by author and uh, some design horror stories I've seen out there about people curating their books by colour of the spine. What a terrible thing to do. Well, Denise O'Connor, Managing Director of Optimised Design, joins me now in studio and we are going to get the right answer. Absolutely. Hi, Sinead. How are you? Nice to have you back here again. Uh, So curating books. Tell me now, what's the right way to do it? Yeah, like it's it's really a personal thing. You know, I've seen it all. I've even seen uh, one that drives my husband absolutely mad where people turn the spine the other way around. So you've no idea what the book is. And the reason behind that is to keep it very neutral. So this is for the total minimalists out there who don't want any colour in the scheme to turn it around. So actually, would you believe we've had clients who, you know, we would design beautiful shelving units and then they come in and say, but it's not finished. And we're like, yeah, you have to put all your things in there. They're like, no, we want you to go out and get the things for us. So it really does depend, you know, with me, like I love to see things build up over time. And it's almost like a little story of your life, you yes. know, over time, which yeah. is so Rather nice. Rather than Insta. Yes. You know, you're instant and Insta bookshelves. Exactly. Well, now, uh, Denise, give us some practical tips. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's nice to kind of have a mix of when when you're putting them on the shelves, maybe don't group them all on the same side. So let's say you have lots of shelves that are little cubby holes. Put one on the left hand, one group on the left hand side, maybe the next shelf down then is on the right hand side. So that's going to create, you know, it's going to bring the eye around a little bit and create a little bit more interest. And then what I would say, if there are books that you really intend to read and you want to read and you know, what you don't want is to forget about them. So put them somewhere that you're going to be able to see them and you're going to remind yourself, oh, yes, I have to read the that TBR book. list. Exactly. Well, I mean, that's yeah. on my windowsill. It's on my bedside locker. It's, it's everywhere. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, some good ideas there and never, ever, ever, ever uh, put your books the wrong way around, I think is probably the... <laughs> 100%. <laughs> All right. Yeah. OK. Well, now, when it comes to uh, things you should and shouldn't do and rules of design and how to do it right and wrong, I mean, we know I, we have fantastic interior designers here in the show and it's wonderful to kind of get all the different perspectives. But there are rules. There, there are kind of right ways to go about things when it comes to design and, you know, wrong things. And you wanted to talk about some of the myths and bust kind of some of the myths and kind of smash them uh, to tell us how to do our interiors. Uh, The first thing is, I think, am I right, that there has been a move towards a very curated look in interiors. People love that hotel look, whether it's their bedroom or hallways or things like that. And it's about symmetry. Yes. You know, yeah, yeah. everything yeah. evenly, you know, the neutral tones all mixed. You're saying bust that myth, do it differently. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I think things like social media, Instagram, Pinterest, they are fabulous um, platforms for ideas, for inspiration. But they they do kind of set us up to fail in, in a way because everything is so stylized. So if you imagine a lot of those shots you're seeing are just little vignettes of a particular room. You're not seeing the reality half the time. No, the clothes strung at the end exactly. of the bed and, you know, the pair of shoes turfed in the corner or whatever. Yes. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the thing about bringing in a little bit of asymmetry, it just relaxes everything. So you don't have that sort of show home perfect 
um, look. So, you know, it's really nice to play with scale, for example. So if you had, say, a console table or even a mantelpiece, anything like that, rather than going for the two candlesticks perfectly either side mm. or, you know, two vases, cluster maybe a tall group of something on one side and then on the other side something maybe lower or even like a plant that might sort of hang down um, just to mix it up a little bit and it just relaxes everything and makes it a little bit more interesting. Uh, now, furniture, uh, if you've got a small room, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, welcome Ikea, you go over and you get your tiny little two-seater and you perch on it <laughs> forevermore. Yes, yeah. uh, but but you say, no, it's OK to put in larger pieces in small spaces. Yeah, definitely. Like we've um, we've put very large sofas into very small rooms and it can actually make the room feel a little bit more cosy, more interesting, more inviting. I think the problem with filling a little room with lots of small pieces of furniture, it just starts to feel very cluttered. Yeah. And you feel like you have to perch somewhere rather than actually nestling in and snuggling in and feeling comfortable. And it it goes back to that thing when you're selling a house, when you're selling an empty house, you know, stylists will often say, look, bring in a sofa, bring in a chair, show people how it might look. Because actually the room looks bigger with the furniture in With the furniture in. That's absolutely right. Now, white wood. So we're talking now the traditional, the skirting boards, uh, the coving, the door frames, the ceilings. White is the only colour, isn't it? Well, not always. So white is fabulous. And, you know, every shade of, of white always looks really good with, you know, it's a nice neutral scheme. It's a very safe scheme. But sometimes it's really nice to flip it on its head. So even go really dark with your woodwork. So we've done blacks, greys, navies, even greens on the, the woodwork. And then you go lighter on your walls. That's the oh, so that's the opposite to what you, completely, what you normally say yeah. because you see the white bits as the kind of the frame for the room, yes, and then the yeah. walls to be decorated. Yeah, so so, so you you're can, using the frame as the kind of the as point the of impact exactly. And the amazing thing is, if you have doors that are maybe not that expensive or they're not in great condition, you know, like flat panel doors, that sort of thing, but painting them really dark, you just really elevate them. They look an awful lot more expensive. So it's a really good trick if you want to just give your home a lift. Don't have an awful lot spend that's a brilliant way to make things look much more expensive than they actually are and there's a kind of an eclectic option on doing that which is paint your doors different from the frame around exactly it. like yeah. a different shade yes yeah so you can go very dark on the door and then go white with your woodwork as well and then a color on the wall and that that can look great right you're very subversive this morning <laughs> Denise. Uh, now patterns so yes. here's the thing this is where i always go wrong because I, I like pattern. I like yeah. a splash of pattern, something geometric or mm-hmm. Mexican or, you know, whatever. Yeah. But it can be hard to get that right when you've other patterns. Yes. The pattern is really difficult. Isn't it? It is. It is. Absolutely. And I suppose the best tip I can give anybody is it's absolutely OK to mix patterns. Um, you'll see it in fashion all the time. It looks amazing. I sense a bush. <laughs> the the trick is to stick to a similar colour palette. So what you ah, don't want is loads okay. of patterns and then loads of colour because the whole thing is going to look really just a bit too eclectic. So if you've picked, say, lemon and a pale green as your colour palette, mm-hmm. then it's OK to have stars and stripes and circles as long as you're picking out those colours. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Ah, so you might okay. have, um, you know... Uh, two different tones of green in one particular pattern and then as long as you have your lemon and your green somewhere else and then maybe you pick up lemon. So you've those colours to work with but don't start throwing in red and orange and <laughs> other things too <laughs> because to it will get yeah, chaotic. Okay. Um, so that brings us on then to the last one which is mixing old and new and um, yeah. it, it can be a lovely idea mm-hmm. to take Granny's Victorian dresser uh, yeah. in your fantastic new shaker kitchen but yes. it's hard 
for it not to look a bit like a sore thumb. So how do you do that well? Yeah, what you've got to do is pull it in by bringing in something that's the same tone. So maybe you want to go with bar stools that have the same tone wood in the legs. You know, so you want to try and... So your eye is drawn from, say, the dark mahogany to another dark wood. Another dark wood. So you're pulling it in that it doesn't just look like, as you say, a sore thumb stuck in the room. So try and pull the whole scheme together. Or if it's a piece of furniture, maybe you want to upholster it in a colour that matches another piece of furniture in the room. Something like that, just to bring it all together. But it's perfectly fine to mix the styles. Right. Well, you've given us some food for thought now. We've gone away with our preconceived notions of uh, what interiors should look like and just as pretty for your Instagram uh, as well. Uh, Absolutely. Denise, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Denise O'Connor from Optimise Design. uh, And you can catch all of Denise's great ideas uh, and, of course, advice from her on your website, which is? Is optimise-home.com. Wonderful. All right. And that is all we have time for on the show this morning. If you'd like to get involved in the show, if you'd uh, any ideas you'd like us to cover or guests you'd like us to have on, please do get in touch with us. Uh, we certainly will read all of the emails that come in to the home show at newstalk.com and the texts that come in to 53106. Uh, and don't forget to check out the home show podcast, which is up on the News Talk website and you can find all our greatest hits from the past up on there. Thank you to Maurice O'Sullivan producing today with Stephen McLoon on sound and Tom Savage is up next. Have a wonderful, warm, sunny weekend and we're here every Saturday at eight o'clock.